0: you uh- I'm Jim Irvin and this is You're Not On The List, the show that celebrates forgotten albums and the people who love them. Two guests and I each select a record that never appears on those lists of the greatest ever made, one which we think is long overdue innovation. Rousing beauties from their sleep in this episode are music writer, celebrated memoirist and CEO of homespun record label Needle Mythology, Peter Perfides, and singer, songwriter, woman about Primrose Hill and coincidentally an artist on Needle Mythology, Tanisa Tickerham. welcome welcome how are you both
1: very well thank you
2: i'm in very good spirits i've got i've got a cold it's my first cold in about 10 years so i'm kind of excited actually
0: <laughs> so tell me pete uh, on a scale of one to do, oh, how's it been running a record label well you do you do it for love don't you it was a hypothesis,
2: and my hypothesis was, what if we just put out records as a sort of collaborative venture with the artists whose names are on the sleeve? Everything is a collaboration, you know, the artwork, the the, the general sort of vibe of the release. You know, what, what if we do that? What if we sort of have conversations about where we master it and stuff like that? How does that make it for everyone? And what's been surprising to me is that that often, that doesn't often happen with sort of larger labels, but um, God, you really get it back in terms of the trust you earn from the artists you're working with. And we've seen that time and time again. It's like it corresponds to my cartoonish, idealised, romantic notion of what it might be like to put out records when I was a kid. okay. No one's going to make much money out of running a label like this in 2021. But thankfully, you know, I do other stuff. So it all kind of evens out, I hope.
0: So the record you worked on together, uh, Tanita, was To Drink the Rainbow, which is a compilation, isn't it, of a particular period of your career. Uh, Was that easy to compile?
1: Um, Well, I didn't compile it. Pete did. So I just had to say yes. And it was hard because originally I think we were going to do a double album. And then that just became a bit complicated, but um, now I bow to his taste, and I I was actually really delighted to, to not have that responsibility.
2: I felt like you know I don't correct me if I'm wrong, Tanita, but I almost felt like I don't think you would have necessarily chosen all those tracks if you if left to your own devices. You wouldn't necessarily have chosen all those tracks. No. So. I don't know, maybe it presented back to you a version of yourself that...
1: Exactly. Obviously, it's very flattering to have someone as passionate and, and and really a fan. I think Peter's a fan of music. And to have that love put onto your music, it's so special. And I, and I was very moved and flattered that Pete chose these songs, even if I don't know if I would have chosen them, it's not that. I don't the think point. I know the
2: song you mean, Talita.
1: No, no. I, I...
2: Does it start with an A?
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Whenever you make a record, and this might be completely redundant now that everyone listens on Spotify or streaming services, but you are creating a listening experience, and it's nice to hear somebody else's idea of what that should be for a no- for a listener for your music. Mm, so. Well,
0: that's what happens, isn't it? You, when you put a, a record out, usually um, it's the audience who decides. Yes. Uh, you don't really know what you've got until you, until you press go on it, do you?
1: Exactly.
2: Sometimes, you know, a record that probably might feel a bit like a Frankenstein's monster to its creators can actually kind of impact upon the world in a very harmonious way. And I think about, you know, a classic example of this is Woodface by Crowded House, which was really two unfinished albums, sort of bolted together uh, when it came out it got very well reviewed no one really noticed that it was this just kind of two records glued together so like you say you know it really is down to the the public might not see the joins they might not hear the joins mm.
0: yeah i think mm. that's um that's true too isn't it of david bowie quite a lot of his records that you feel he was winging it a bit young americans he said to tony visconti i think i've I think we finished an album when it was called the gloucester um before they did the tracks with john lennon but fundamentally the same record that came out in the end um and it's just odd isn't it to think that a classic record may the artist that made it doesn't know if it's finished or not if it's ready to go and just the act of putting it out sort of finishes it off you've
2: you've both made records so you will know more than me you know about that you must have both been in situations where you're not actually just sure if you've finished and you need someone else to tell you does is that true
1: i think i'm in that situation at the moment our album's kind of relevant and it's a very strange time people are putting out eps or or just kind of projects and also do do people i don't know how do people listen to things that's a very strange thing
0: well also i wonder you've been doing it for a while now has your own relationship with music and the way that you consume it changed and, and reasons for doing it is is it different now from from when you started out
1: I think I've actually become much more passionate about music and and really feel like a musician and feel like somebody just growing all the time, hopefully. But in terms of what you're doing as a commercial artist, that is is changing a lot. When the head of Spotify says people should release music every six months or something like that to be able to make money from music, that, that slightly worries me. I think there is too much music sometimes but it would be interesting to hear a young person's view of, an, of of how they listen to music. It won't be the same way that we listen to music, or even me. I, I now, I, when I, I really made me think about how I listen to music, I do listen to a lot of music in streaming, and I and I and I don't listen to albums enough.
2: Yeah, I think, but then the 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 idea of the album still holds a lot of sway. I think my my kids still believe in the album as a kind of concept. And sure, they listen to disparate tracks. They they love making playlists and so forth. But, you know, they still get excited about a new album from uh, one of their favourite artists.
1: That's really great, yeah.
0: Tanita, you started releasing records in 1988 and you've only actually released nine albums since then. Um, Same period, Van Morrison's done 25. Um, I'm not suggesting his is the model everyone should follow, but that does feel as if you've had periods along the way where you've been uh, ambivalent about the job or you haven't fancied making music. Is Is that what it was?
1: No, I, I I think when I started, I made quite a lot of albums in a short space of time. Started very young. I was 18, 19 when my first album came out. So I just felt that I had a lot of growing up to do in on a personal level. So those gaps are just me. I lived abroad a lot. But when you're young and you have a very big success, you you feel a little bit as if you're not entirely sure if you've chosen the right... Path. Yeah, there are many questions and doubts that can can come to you. So, I think just having a breathing space is a, is a nice thing.
0: Ancient Heart. Your first album was a very mature sounding record. But do you look back on on that person and go, "Ooh, who is she?" Do you recognise the the girl that made that first record?
1: Um, no, I do recognise that girl. I love the freedom that you have when you are young and creating. You have absolutely no limits and no expectations. And for me, that freedom is always something, as an older artist, you try to to return to, in terms of your creativity and the way that you work with all the experience that you have. There's always a nostalgia I have for that very intense young, young person who, was reacting to everything with a real openness, whether it was poetry or, or going to the theatre or learning about other people's lives. I think all of that would have ended up influencing how I wrote. I just feel that you are very connected to something very powerful when you're young. That That that's, is a kind of liberty in the way that you think. And, and hopefully you don't... You gain experience and you gain a craft, but you don't lose that, that child, which is um, quite a beautiful thing.
0: Pete, readers of your much admired uh, memoir, Broken Greek, will know that you were a very sensitive child, weren't you? And um, responded to music and uh, even the softest music <laughs> in quite an extreme way. And, and I love the assertion that your star man moment uh, was uh, Brotherhood of Man and, and that you went looking for artists who could sort of act as surrogate parents
2: what i was trying to do there in that particular passage and in quite a lot of the book really was be just be as honest as i could about the way music impacts upon you in the years before you get a little bit kind of hung up on what it is to be cool i just think a react an emotional reaction is an emotional reaction and you can't apply qualitative terms onto it if if that's how you felt when you watched the brotherhood of man doing savior kisses for me that's just how you felt your responsibility well my responsibility was to kind of put people in my brain at that kind of moment in time and so that was and i really i remember sort of thinking I want to write about this the way all these music writers have got have written about watching David Bowie do Starman on Top of the Pops. <laughs> I want to write about Brotherhood of Man on the Eurovision Song Contest <laughs> in the same way. You know, that moment where David Bowie kind of looks at the camera, beckons the viewer. Oh, sorry, I picked on you. Or I called on you. I can't remember what the exact line is. Because I just think that's just a fantastic thing. You know, once that's inside you, once you have that reaction, there will always be a part of you that feels like that about a particular song.
0: Did I answer your question? I think I've rambled off point. <laughs> no, not at all. It's fine. What, what I loved about that particular section of the book is this idea that you knew what it was that made you fall in love with music very early on. You had a reason. And that's something we don't often get the chance to identify, is it, because it happens to us so early in our in our lives but you seem to have uh, a particular relationship with music. It fulfilled a particular function in your life at that time.
2: Absolutely. And um, I was a bit of a strange child. I didn't talk to anyone apart from my family for three years. I was very shy and I was discombobulated by my situation, which was like my parents were, were were Greek and Greek Cypriot, and they we were kind of preparing a move back to Cyprus, and it didn't happen because of the um, Turkish occupation of the northern half of Cyprus. So suddenly, I was in this place I didn't expect to be in what was happening to me effectively i was becoming british and pop music was the, the this thing that, that was more exciting than anything else in my life and the more excited about i got about pop and the people predominantly british artists who were making it um the guiltier i felt because along with the not talking it, i realized at some level that i was turning into something that my parents hadn't expected me to become and so so that's a slightly kind of prosaic foundation for the uh, absurd scenario that kind of then ensued of me watching top of the pops and seeing people like kiki d and olivia newton john and sort of and just almost kind of in my mind grading their um suitability to be my parents you know when my when my mum and dad finally decided they'd had enough of being the parents of this weird silent kid and sort of sent me back to whatever place you send children back to when they when they're not as you expected
0: you thought there was a chance that they'd move away and leave you behind did you
2: I was just, yeah, I was just convinced. Well, yeah, and there was, you know, in the book, there is this kind of unfortunate kind of moment where, you know, they we moved house, and I was only told that we were, we were moving house about three days before it happened, and my parents said, um, well, you know, uh, my mum said I'll pick you up from school on Monday, and but we'll have moved by then because we're doing the move in the daytime, and they were late picking me up from school, so on the Monday. <laughs> So, like, my my nightmare came true. I went to the school. I was, like, uh, it was eight or something, seven or eight. I went and waited outside the school gates, and it was December, so it was already dark. And there there was no one there. So I thought, oh, my God, they weren't. (laughs) They didn't tell me. God, they were trying to get rid of me. I said, what do I do? What do I do? So I just walked down to the chip shop where we lived, you know, we lived above the chip shop down the road. And I got there, and I and I remember standing across the road from the chip shop and just seeing in the in the window two kids just playing in the, in the chip shop and then two grown-ups standing behind the fish fryer that weren't my parents. It was like a, was like a nightmare. <laughs> so that's basically why... I wanted Brotherhood of Man to adopt me because I just thought my parents were planning to get rid of me anyway, which is very unfair on my parents because they love me. And you know they would have been mortified if they thought this stuff was going on in my head.
0: <laughs> Tanita, what was your childhood relationship with music? Was there was there a lot of it about?
1: Yeah, I music was quite important because I grew up quite a lot in Germany, so we received a lot of the music laden and the music that you hear in Germany, quite traditional German, mm-hmm. and um, endless Elvis films. Like those uh. films were dubbed, he was dubbed, but the music was always in English. So I just had a very yeah I just thought Elvis was very current and he was in German. He was still the king. It and um, blown
2: your mind when people started reviewing your records and started saying that you looked like him.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I had a very strange relationship. Because also the first album my brother bought was G.I. Blues. Uh, we, bought a, we won a record voucher. So in the naffy, he bought G.I. Blues. Because my dad was a soldier, I just had a very strange idea of, of Elvis being a soldier too. But my parents gave us one of those radio recorders and there were some great stations in Germany that were playing rock and roll music in the 50s and the 60s and I had a an encyclopedia of rock and roll. So I used to read that constantly and read about the Big Bopper and Buddy Holly and all these people. So they felt very real to me. And I'm obviously ABBA and I think I think my education in music was a very healthy one. My dad had Trojan records. The thing about Pete's book, that's very universal, I think we all have those intense memories of a particular song which may not be in the canon, but but it's been really important to how we see the world.
0: Yeah, there were definitely some throwbacks on on the on the list that you both gave me, the short list of potential albums that we could discuss. On the on the show today, um, but Pete, I, I was surprised there wasn't any Wombles on on your list. Although you were very keen to bring in something by these emotional Wombles, Coldplay, Fever La Vida. Now I thought that that might have been stretching the premise of the show a bit too far, a bit too soon in its life.
4: Yes,
2: <laughs> isn't it amazing though how an album that sold millions and millions of copies around the world can be underrated? It's the first album where they played all together as a band in the studio amazingly and you know Brian Eno uh, uh produced it and he did that Brian Eno thing that Brian Eno does which is sort of blindside their self-consciousness and so that in order to sort of almost trick fantastic performances out of them the tunes are great the end it has this amazing sort of energy to it he's probably their best lyrics I think you were right it would have been a bit of a, a curveball to
0: um to present <laughs> <that>. <laughs> it was just that I thought it was quite hard to define that record as forgotten. <laughs>
2: Kind of is though, so, you know. Whoever who goes on about it now, no one.
0: <laughs> well, I will grant you that uh, "Viva La Vida" itself, the song, is fantastic. It's a great song.
2: They it, they almost left it off the album, like the record company didn't really know what what to do with it. Pet Shop Boys have covered it. Um, it has. It, it's the song. It's the Coldplay song that people who hate Coldplay like. A lot of songs that people really become very, very, very well loved in an artist's canon are quite atypical of their their wider work and in a way that's it can go either way they can be just regarded as curate's eggs and not really do much or they can be just kind of flashes of genius that can never be repeated
0: well the sort of reverse happened didn't it on the previous Coldplay plow album x and y um when they took it to the record company and they said oh we don't really hear a a big ballad on here you need a big ballad so chris went off and wrote a song called a message uh, which is one of the lesser-known tunes on that record now, I think, and and of course that's the album with "Fix You" on it, um, and it's hard to imagine anyone at a record company hearing that record and not seeing the value of of "Fix You" um, and all the kind of um, emotional weight that that carries. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although full disclosure, when that album first came out, I I reviewed "Fix You" by saying, uh, "You'll either weep or spew."
2: <laughs> no one knows what's happening ultimately, do they? You know, it's just there's no. Uh, I remember um, interviewing Paolo Nettini about 11 years ago, maybe. And he just released his second album, Sunnyside Up, which the record company sort of hated. They thought there were kind of no hits on it and they thought they hated the artwork. And people didn't have very, very high hopes for it, but it was a kind of runaway success commercially. And he told me a story about how apparently the guy from a record company said, it needs one more song. It needs, it's lacking a kind of sitting on the dock of the bay, stone cold, classic in that vein, as if it's that easy to just go home and write. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> funny thing. Oh, yeah, hey, uh, I've got 10 minutes. I'll go and write one.
2: But the funny thing about that song is if you think about sitting on on the dock of the bay, it's like, it hasn't got a chorus. It's got a whistling solo in it. I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, that's old, you know. I'm sure, like when you know the first time around, when when that happened, no one
0: thought it'd be a hit. <laughs> well, it's funny because uh, actually, I interviewed Steve Cropper yesterday. Oh, wow! Yeah.
1: Oh my god!
0: Specifically about sitting wow. on the dock of the bay.
1: No! Wow! You interviewed him.
0: Yeah, I and he—I mean—he's told the story a million times, I'm sure. But um, yeah, they did think it would be a hit. He he cut it with um, with, with Otis. They had a week of recording, and they kept pulling this out and kept listening to it and saying, there's something about this, there's something about this. They wanted a crossover hit. You know, he'd had all his soul hits, and they wanted something that would play to the pop stations. And they thought this might be it. And then, of course, he died uh, before it was quite finished. And Steve Cropper had to finish it off. The record company made him him finish it while they were still looking for Otis's body uh, after the plane crash. Wow.
1: Oh hello.
0: And uh, yeah, so he, he 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 was sort of made to to edit it, and uh, he was sort of grieving while he was doing it. But um, oh my
1: god,
2: yeah,
0: they the, they they did kind of know it was gonna it was gonna work. I think
2: amazing.
0: Wow. Tanita, you initially selected a record Metropolis Shanghai Showboat to China that was so obscure I couldn't find it anywhere. <laughs> I found a few tracks on YouTube, but it was hard to work out what was going on even even when I heard them. It seemed to be almost like a sort of documentary or something. Tell us about it. What what is it? My
1: favourite album, I think. I have a great nostalgia for this album because it feels that they've managed to recreate a feeling that I have, even though I didn't live in that period. My mother is Malaysian, but many of her stories would be related to Indochine or just this feeling of the colonial period. And to be able to reimagine that is extraordinary and to feel all the elements of the different, the different influences which, which happen in a colonial power in a country which is, you, you hear something from, from from the Chinese culture and then you hear something that could come from the Western world and, and a longing, I hear a great longing on this album for something past. So for me, it's it's just a magical sound world and, and something that it's a real journey. And and yes, listening to bits of it wouldn't necessarily make sense. <laughs> Unfortunately, it, it is very obscure.
0: Yeah. Was, it, was it a band or, or was it someone making a collage? I couldn't tell. <laughs> what, what...
1: Winter and Winter is this completely bonkers label that just did different projects like this that, that just made these kind of sound worlds really lovingly recreating the sound of perhaps as they would have made the music at that time.
0: I asked you both to fill in a little musical CV for me and the uh, question, song that evokes the strongest memory, you put Ballad of Lucy Jordan by Marianne Faithful. Tell me about that.
1: My mum loved this song and I heard it when I was growing up in Germany. It was a huge hit in Holland. It was like number one for like years. (laughs) And And the lyrics are so strange to a young person also to know that my mum loved this song and the song is really about this woman who's trapped in this very conventional life and has lived something much more passionate. To see your parents have this desire expressed in a song that you don't really understand. And it's a very adult song and Marion Faithful is a very adult person to a young person. She's not cuddly and, and you know she's edgy and slightly strange to it if you were young. So for me, that really set my imagination on fire to understand that there was another world. And that kind of cracked image is is one I, I really love, of a kind of romanticism which is broken. So, yeah, that, that, that was a powerful song for me when I was young.
0: I think that's an important point, isn't it, that we do extract quite a, a lot of clues about the adult world from pop when we're kids. Um, and I... I Just wondering, you know, what goes on in relationships and stuff. You you get some idea of it from pop songs, but also just watching grown-ups do it. Watching people jigging about on top of the pops and thinking, oh, that looks like fun. I want to do what they're doing. You know, for me as a kid, it was great incentive to grow up. Well, let's have a look at the actual records that you've chosen to bring in today. And Pete, let's begin with you. You've selected a comparatively recent album from 2013, the latest record by Prefab Sprout, Crimson Red. And before you tell us why you've brought it in, let's hear a selection from it.
4: Take your cracked violin, let the music begin And sing like your Francis are broken If your voice is all shot, it's still the best one you've got You're a work of art that's broken The blind man paints abstract expressionist saints. We ride with stateless kings, dream that our horses have wings. show trumpets come trumpets go. It's amazing what gets left out in i'm in love with susan i'm in love with susan bill, yes. with susan bill. smile is
0: like a fairground. that's, uh, that's prefab sprout from crimson red the choice of my guest peter buffedes you heard impossible things the devil came a calling and billy so pete tell us what you know about this record and uh, and, and why you've chosen it
2: uh, the story behind it is is quite a peculiar one he um decided he no longer wanted to record for sony because he felt like he couldn't really keep his side of the bargain when it came to promoting the record and he didn't really feel like he could go on the promotional treadmill and justify the kind of investment of faith and money that being on a major label uh to entail so his manager kind of seeking for other ways in which to sort of keep him solvent because obviously he's someone who makes records very infrequently so the mere matter of just surviving in between records isn't that straightforward uh so somehow somewhere along the line his manager got him into a situation where he got a bunch of investors to invest money in in the next whatever the next his next record would be to whatever they'd invested they'd get their return when the record had presumably sold a certain amount of, of copies crumbs but Paddy is a perfectionist. And so this project that he spent, like so many of his projects, like he spent years and years of working on, well, he missed his deadline by three years. He was <laughs> he got himself into this situation where his investors <laughs> threatened to sue him. Oh, no. Like, what did you expect? You know, like, do you know anything about the person you've invested in? <laughs> so it's like investing in the Blue Nile or something. We- J.D. Salinger. <laughs> But the thing is, he had he got into a bit of a panic. So he just had to abandon that project because he wasn't really anywhere near sort of finishing it. But he still had to honour his contractual obligations. So he looked through his archive for songs that he'd already written that he could record quite quickly. That's why a lot of the songs are relatively sort of simple in a way. And a lot of them are quite episodic. So there's a song, the first song on the album is... The best, it's called the best jewel thief in the world. It's about the excitement of being a criminal, like being a jewel thief in this case, just the romantic way that you see what you do, you know, the kind of anti establishment self image that someone like that would have. You know, if this is P- Paddy McAlean's version of phoning it in. Bloody hell. God, I'd love to be able to phone this stuff in. You know, it's you, It's almost like the opening credits of a film. Um, the rooftops are for dreamers. You strike and they return. Lucerne to Heathrow, the best jewel thief in the world. Down below, what do any of those losers know? Down below, down below, what do any of those assholes know? I mean, it's just exquisite. There's a brilliant song called The Old Magician. At one level, it's about an old magician who's been doing the same tricks for years and years and years. And, you know, he hasn't really updated his act very much. You know, observe the shabby hat and gloves, the tired act that no one loves, a mirror and a puff of smoke. His Mysteries Are now a joke. His poor assistant, black and blue. Of course, she's tired of being sawn in too. You know, I think it's a sort of song about, you know, marriage as well. and You can't rely on the old routines or the things that you used to do. Sometimes, you know, you have to sort of change it up. You have to sort of evolve. So I think those are all sort of under the surface. They're under the surface of this incredibly charming, funny song, which I suspect didn't take him. Very long to write. And but
0: it, one thing that struck me about that is the relative unambiguity of the material on this record. Whereas in the past he would have had dozens of ideas in a single song, he he's a bit more on the nose here, isn't he? And like the devil came from calling, came calling that we heard a little bit of he really just does the faustian pact he doesn't do very much with it, it but that seems.
2: could have been you know this is pre trump so this is amazing this is this is a song that could have been, come, come out last year and everyone would think it was about a pop you know in this country as well this populist leader who promises you everything you want it's sort of uncanny you know um, you know the devil came a calling all smiles and flattery in his hands a contract exclusively for me And I love that's, you know, that nails the kind of the populist cult. You know, you do feel like these people are just kind of reaching out through the screen and talking to you. This is what they have. This is what Boris Johnson has. And it's just terrifying to see people completely sort of suckered in by this act at the rough end of such an enormous body count that we've seen over the last year. And the final line, this is such a great payoff because it just sort of like it doesn't hammer it home. The final four lines, the devil came a calling, no brimstone, fire nor rain. In fact, I found him charming, articular, a bane. And that's it. You know, it reminds me of that sort of that Mitchell and Webb sketch where the, you know, the two kind of Nazi soldiers who sort of look at each other and say, hang on a minute. Do you think, are we the bad guys? You know? <laughs> yes. You know, I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, there's a song called Billy. I don't really understand how, why I'm so moved by this song. And other people I've spoken to also don't seem to understand what it is. And, you know, even Paddy, I remember him saying all good songs have an occult power. I think that there's something definitely in that because this is a song that's way more than the sum of its parts. This character, Billy, seems to have a kind of secret to life that the protagonist needs to be let in on. I'm in love with Susan, Billy. I said, I'm in love with Susan, Bill. Her smile is like a fairground. I'm basking in the glow. Paddy's just got preserved this kind of unshowy, almost stealthy kind of mysticism to the way he chooses his words, which uh, just stays with you long after the, the songs ended. And he seems to be doing that
0: kind of more- But Billy, which you quoted there, reminds me of Dex's Midnight Runners. It sounds like this is what she's like. Yeah, because that's with the bill. Well, exactly. I don't know if you saw uh, Kazu Ishiguro on Imagine recently, but he talked a little bit about this. He grew up wanting to be a a singer-songwriter, and uh, he loved the way that songs could be veiled and, and elliptical, and that was the kind of book he sought to write in a way, doing the kind of thing that song does about not giving away what's really going on. And you might argue that in the past Paddy's been slightly guilty of of throwing too much information into a into a song and not giving the listener enough enough work to do i think it's interesting that he's much more sort of transparent on this record
2: yeah i think it's just the pressure of a deadline you know which i think in this case really yielded treasure i don't think things have been easy for him in the last 15 years or so he almost entirely lost his eyesight i think he's had other health problems as well i think it'd be interesting to hear your take on this tanita but um I think a lot, a lot of people who had su- massive success at a particular time in the history of the music industry, and I'm also thinking about Green from Squitty Politti and Roddy Frame, maybe sort of Tracy Thorne as well, um, Matt Johnson from The The. They're all very ambivalent about stepping back into that, that, in, that intense kind of spotlight. They, they seem to keep it at a distance. I don't know if there's something about having been a recording artist at that point in history that makes you ambivalent about wanting to go about there. I perceive it in him. I don't know how you feel about that, Tanita.
1: Well, oh, um, first, can I say, I think that Song Billy is a great song. And it, and it has the, the thing I like best about his songwriting, which it really has a mystery. And you don't know even melodically. I, I think it's simple, but it has a mystery. It, it, it builds in a way that I find very convincing and, and carry, carries the listener. No, I just uh, think when you have great success at a young age and, and, and at that particular time, it gives you many freedoms financially, for one. That's the way I look at it. It's given me an artistic life. And I don't I don't try and think about it more than
0: that. Yeah, it's very difficult to buck your image, though, isn't it? Unless you're uh, Neil Young or someone who's set the terms and conditions early on and said, expect the unexpected, I'm going to do whatever I like. Most artists, intentionally or not, feel some sort of duty to stay in their lane, don't they? And I'm just interested, I mean, Paddy's broken out a couple of times. I, I trawl the megahertz was a bit of a departure. But I wonder if he felt duty-bound to return to his... 80s feel uh, which he does on the, on on this record
2: i think a lot of it was necessity i think he's just someone who doesn't um he's uncomfortable with change uncomfortable with doing things in different ways to what he's become used to um oh. i think he's uncomfortable with relearning you know, how to use certain hardware and stuff like that. And um, I got the
0: impression that he's distilled his thing into its most unruffled form on, on this record. You know, it's very smooth, but it's like, I don't know, something like Asia by Steely Dam, where it's all low temperature precision and such confidence in the style that you feel that the um, the creators know what they're doing so well they don't even look up when you enter the room.
2: Yeah, it's lovely. I mean, and I guess he couldn't look up because he was in such a mad hurry, to not be sued by his investors. I think, you know, maybe we should all be, maybe we should all have investors threatening to sue us as we uh, attempt to meet a deadline.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's he's had a history, hasn't he, of abandoned projects. Um, He's often been interviewed in the past about what he's doing and has talked about elaborate concept albums that have never emerged or he's never finished uh you know he has a history of of these things overwhelming him hasn't he
2: and i think he regrets having met, mentioned them by name now because people he said that people come up to him in the supermarket and say what ha- what happened with your concept album about princess diana or michael jackson or, mm. or or the history of the world yeah i think he kind of thinks that they quickly become sort of albatrosses and it kind of, it almost deters him from going back to them and and uh, finishing them he told the story, Paddy told the story about how um, the last time he finally decided to do, I think it was possibly even Jordan, The Comeback, which was, you know, you know, was like a hugely acclaimed record. You know, at the time, people were saying this is one of the best records ever made, you know. And I think he did some promo for it. He did Going Live with Philip Schofield. And um, he was kind of in Pebble, on Pebble Mill or some time, daytime TV program. And he's standing next to whoever the resident chef is of this daytime TV program program and he's about to make an omelet and he's standing behind a counter and he's like and they're just running through through it before they're kind of the, the red lights turn on the camera and apparently there's someone on the floor who's like a massive prefab sprout fan kind of comes up to him and says paddy what you do- what, what are you doing here
0: <laughs> <laughs> run get out know. <laughs> there's a kate bush story isn't there about she had a similar experience when she gave up doing promo somewhere towards the end of kick inside when she found herself in Uruguay being interviewed by someone dressed as Charlie Chaplin or something and (laughs) thought, no, this is it. This is, this this is too much. Tanita, what about you? Have you had any of those terrible moments?
1: Uh, I think I've done going live. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, but I was younger. So for me, it was just funny. I don't, I don't, I, it was probably what you do. Yeah. I don't know. And I think, Yeah, it was fine.
0: So you went along with it. You made the omelette at that point. You didn't question it at all.
1: No, I don't think so, no. And maybe that's why I have taken time away and just thought about other things. I think music is wonderful and it's a very important thing to me, but it's one thing in my life. So there are other things which... The freedom I gained was to be able to, to read and buy books and have so many other things that I wanted as a child that I wouldn't have necessarily been able to do if I hadn't chosen this and hadn't had such a success.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, let's have a look at the album that you uh, wanted to talk about today. Tanita has chosen from October 1977 the self-titled debut album by Odyssey. the room there are Odyssey from their debut album, self-titled 1977, the choice of my guest, Tanita Tikram. You heard Native New Yorker, Weekend Lover and Golden Hands. So, Tanita, what is it that makes this record a forgotten classic for you?
1: Oh, it has, first of all, Lilian Lopez's amazing voice. I, I think she's one of the most underrated singers. Her vo- voice is maternal, it's warm. If, if you want to have a great comparison, the first... Version of Native New Yorker was recorded by Frankie Valli. Frankie Valli's feels like he's struggling with the arrangement. It's almost the exact same arrangement because it's the same. Um, the, the arranger is Charlie Charles Kalelo, very famous arranger. He did like Bruce Springsteen, the strings on Born to Run, and he did Sweet Caroline with Neil Diamond and things like that. He's he's also done a huge work before Seasons, but his. When when she sings it, she just glides effortlessly through the song and she really carries this sense of a city in New York. It's just, I just think the whole album, for a young kid, because I discovered this when I was maybe 10 years old, that all the songs are like story songs. You know, Michael has golden hands. He's, from, he's playing basketball. He's growing up in the ghetto. You hear We can love Lover. I didn't really understand what that song was about when I was 10, but it was obviously... Something about a secret love story, being, having a love story with a married man and just the arrangements. These arrangements are stunning. Big, big studio arrangements with amazing players. Just a, a way of writing arrangements, which, which is, a, is, a lost, is almost a lost start. It's something you're just catching the tail end, perhaps, of, of that kind of arranging. Yeah, they don't make records like that. They probably cost an astronomical amount of money to make as well. And also for my as a young person sounded like it came, was expressing the sound of a neighbourhood, of a very diverse neighbourhood. And 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 that was something very valuable to hear as a as a multi-ethnic kid growing up.
0: Yeah, that's something I wasn't expecting uh, from this record at all. Uh, I assume because of Native New Yorker, it would be just like a, a disco album. And there were some really good disco albums made at the end of the 70s. But it's something else, isn't it? It's it's like a portrait of New York, as you say. There's all these different uh, cameos, different characters in it. And it's closer in, in that respect to something like it could have been a stage musical like Rent or something. Yeah. Um, and I love that the saxophone sounded like the, the sax that's in the Saturday Night Live theme. It might even be the same player. It's got that, that real New York-y thing to it.
4: Absolutely. Uh, and,
0: yeah, the, the arrangements are really unexpected. Then it's not much four on the floor in there. There's lots of different rhythms. There's a sort of calypso thing at one point. There's uh, some Tijuana brass. There's marimba. Um, You do get this sense of all these kind of cultural threads uh, they're in New York being pulled together for this portrait. Yeah. And I was thinking of things like Kids from Fame and/or and, uh, and or sitcoms like Rhoda or something.
1: Oh, yeah, or Love Boat.
0: Yeah, the theme
2: to Rhoda is a good reference point, um, it seems to me. It's just so aspirational, isn't it? That sound <laughs> that you talked about, Tanita. That um, even now, uh, you know, I kind of have a kind of rolling playlist of city songs that. Um, that I listen to when I when, when I just want to step into that fantasy of being in a city like New York at night, and you know, native New York would obviously be on there. Stepping Out by Joe Jackson, Dancing in the City by Marshall Hayes, <laughs> Street Life by the Crusaders. Yeah, um, God, you know, and to think that one day you might go to these places and perhaps have these songs playing in your headphones as you actually you're there, you know, it's mind blowing. Absolutely.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned Charlie Colello there. I hadn't realised the connection between this record and the Four Seasons uh, because he did a lot of of songs for them, didn't he? Um, Let's Hang On, Working My Way Back To You, uh, Opus 17, uh, quite a lot of, of big Four Seasons hits. Yeah. Um, and he'd also done things like Frank Sinatra's Watertown and, um, uh, as you said, uh, Sweet Caroline. And then... Um, uh, he, he produced Tim Buckley's Sophronia and also did uh, Disco Techs and the Sexalettes Get Dancing. <laughs> so it's a really good CV, really interesting guy, I think.
1: It's extraordinary. And you just hear this quality on this. This album is a quality album. It's the, It's those big production values. And it's that gorgeous american sound which is so impossible to imitate it's just these amazing players these session players and people who can play music backwards inside out and still sound soulful it's wonderful it's sumptuous
0: and it's so seductive as a sound isn't it i I thought it was like having um, having a sort of oral bubble bath (laughs) it's odd that they're not more widely remembered i think odyssey because they had some really good hits in their time going back to my roots. And if you're looking for a way out and use it up and wear it out, amazing. Um, I'm, I'm surprised they're, they're not, they're not more highly regarded. They're so underrated, aren't they? Cause
2: if you sort of like, you, you know, you mentioned some of those hits, if you asked the person in the street to name three big hits by Barry White, I think they might be struggling on the third one. And yet you have a group here who had a, like a pretty longish succession of hits, which everyone knows really. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, Odysseus' name isn't really in the frame yeah. on the same way. Yes,
1: I guess also the Le sisters and and, and the, the the male singer they were also they also kind of looked a bit old. Yeah, they were. I know that the Prestes sisters were, were a band from nineteen sixty nine. That's right. They looked yeah. maternal. They didn't look quite <laughs> the same age yes. as everyone else on the top of the pop. So That's how I felt
2: about Kiki D Tanita, you know, similar thing. <laughs> I thought, well, you know, if my parents had to pop out for for half an hour, then I'd be safe with Kiki, you know. So sort of things with the Lopez sisters, you know, absolutely. I think
4: so.
0: I really enjoyed listening to this as a whole record, and I thought if every song was as strong as Naked Naked Native New Yorker, it, the sort of sophistication of that and the way it all hangs together and its sort of mood altering qualities, and as you say, the arrangement, it would really be, and every home should have one record. Mm. But there are one or two tracks, I think, that haven't aged so well. There are a couple of clunkers.
1: Oh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> clunkers is a bit harsh, yes. Yeah, right?
1: no, definitely. If you've grown up with them, it's different. But,
0: but there's the sort of un ness of, of something like uh, Weekend Lover, where it's eulogising about being a mistress. <laughs> uh, which yeah, you, wouldn't, no. you, would, you wouldn't do that now, would you? No, no,
1: no. It also has that quality of Sesame Street and Helen Reddy those kind of records that you like, yeah yeah it's a little bit cheesy but but they are they have they're performed with love let's say that
0: yeah I think it's great that there's a real appreciation for this period now and, and people are starting to recognize that what was once regarded as a very plastic kind of music is actually really human and 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 completely different from the way we hear music today. I always think of this period as, as being the, the last time that dance music was made entirely by humans. Uh, there's you no know, mechanical devices involved. And it's, it's great to hear something that really breathes and and, and, and you can hear people uh, yeah. dynamically kind of leaning into the groove and all that. Oh,
1: wow. And it really grooves the yeah. And it's very, yeah, all of those qualities I love and, and, and appreciate. And, and, and sometimes that's a little bit missing on this very hard sound that we can have now and very repetitive.
2: You really want to be a fly on the wall in that studio. And, you know, I, I, I imagine that this was a record recorded at night, and if it wasn't, I don't want to know the truth. <laughs> It's part of my fantasy about New York that all the all great things happen at night.
1: Yeah, that's my image. I do see that. Too.
2: Allowing yourself to be enveloped by this world that is so different to the worlds that we would have grown up in. You know, increasingly, I really value that in records, just to sort of just be astrally just chauffeured to another place. <laughs> and um, and that this record totally did it for me. So
1: thank you.
0: And you're being chauffeured there in a particularly luxurious limo, aren't you?
1: Yeah, that, that's
0: a great deal. Okay, let's move on. It's um, my choice now, and I've chosen an album from 1996, the third album by Maria McKee. Life is sweet. <laughs> Bothering Songs from Maria McKee's Life Is Sweet. That was the title track, and before then, This Perfect Dress. Well, this is just simply one of those the few records I know that is, I believe is a genuinely lost masterpiece. It's the kind of record that should have been favourite with millions of people and influencing the next generation of musicians. And yet it still, at the very best, has a small cult following of people who know how amazing it is. 25 years to the month almost since it was released. So what's the story? Well, uh, Maria made her name fronting country punk band Lone Justice when she was just 18. And when they started being led in a different, more sort of adult rock direction, Maria left the band and went solo. Her self-titled debut album was a success. She had a uh, number one hit in the UK with Show Me Heaven, the theme from a Tom Cruise movie. Uh, she also wrote another number one single, A Good Heart for Fergal Sharkey. So her stock was pretty high. Uh, she had a following. But once again, she felt she was being led in a direction that she didn't own. And she started to make a, a rootsier record, gospelly, you've got to sin to be saved, but admitted that she'd grown tired of the material by the time she came to tour it. And it didn't do that well. And around about this time, she was diagnosed uh, as being Bipolar. And then she began dating a guy who kept listening to David Bowie, and I think he gave her a mixtape, Best of Glam Rock or something. And she became fascinated by the guitar playing of Mick Ronson, uh, the way he shadowed Bowie like a backing vocalist, and she thought, "Well, I could do that." She picked up an electric guitar and started writing some of the best things she'd ever written, possibly inspired by this diagnosis that she just had. There were songs of self-reflection and doubt and and and, and self-realisation, and, and they they just poured out of her. And once recorded, she quite justifiably thought this was the most sort of authentic and defining music of her career. They're brooding, sometimes quite oppressive songs with the guitars front and centre. There's the sound can be quite claustrophobic, but then it opens up with a surprise addition of a string quartet on several songs, and they're also really hooky things, moments of pop, there's some lightness. Uh, she was aware that as she puts it now, it smashed up her Americana brand. But her AR man at Geffen Records, Tony Burke, was really supportive and, you know, they thought they'd made a great record. However, when he took the finished album to a marketing meeting, 12 of the 13 people there gave it a thumbs down, effectively killing its chances. Geffen put it out without much enthusiasm, and Maria came to Europe to do some touring, Uh, did some fantastic shows, stunning performances. You can see some of them on uh, YouTube, TV slots recorded in Britain and Germany. I thoroughly recommend the Hotel Babylon performance of Life is Sweet. And when I interviewed her 20 years ago for an entry in a book called The Mojo Collection, she said she was nearly suicidal when it flopped and she was dropped by Geffen. It's never been on vinyl and it was quickly deleted, so it's relatively hard to find, even on CD. She's revisited some of these songs over the years, but she couldn't seem to get back to the intensity of this with her original writing. Until recently, a few years ago, her mother died and she had a revelation that she'd never have children and it kind of opened a Pandora's box for her. Her marriage to the film director Jamaican broke down and she came out as, as pansexual. She describes herself as a, a radical queer. She's done advocacy work for trans women, helping them access hormones and surgery. And she divides her life between East London, where she lives with a family that she's close to, and L.A., where she has an apartment directly above her ex-husband. Last year, she released a superb record, La Vita Nuova, uh, all of which was written during this period of upheaval. Which has a similar melodramatic impact to this one and was supposedly inspired by Dante and a muse she hasn't yet met, a a woman that she told me was conjured by the act of writing songs about her, which is a good trick if you can do it, I'm sure you'll agree. I I can understand why Life is Sweet might not be to everyone's taste, there's a song on there called I'm Not Listening which is like a nervous breakdown set to music Uh, and it's still pretty strong meat 25 years later but... The whole record, yes, operates in the opposite dimension from the Prefab Sprout and the Odyssey record, but I really do believe it should be recognised as one of those touchstone, one-off masterpieces like Astral Weeks or Blue or Grace, a great artist pouring everything they've learned into one glorious moment. Uh, I get something new from it every time I listen to it, and it still moves me and excites me and makes me want to post it on Twitter with a pointy finger going, this! It's simply a magical record
2: for what it's worth I, I I I loved it and I'd I'd release it on my label like a shot if she'd let me but <laughs> maybe I should uh find
1: I was t- gonna su- suggest that too yeah. I I've, I've just written great on everything on this <laughs> extraordinary and and I've written Bowie I didn't realize she was so in but I just this is just like David Bowie a phenomenal album. I I can't understand why it wasn't a, just a gigantic. Because all the songs are just huge. Yeah. And yeah. and she's a great guitarist. She's an incredible singer. The lyrics are unbelievable. There's just nothing. Yeah. I can't listen to it and go. hmm, I, I know why that wasn't as a. Guy. I just <laughs> don't understand. It's just a totally an unbelievable album. I I've never heard of it. That's
0: just shocking. I know, I know. But um, you've got a theory, Pete, haven't you, about why you reacted maybe reacted adversely to it when it first came out? Well, I only heard the the title track, which "Life Is Sweet." Out, outside of the context of the
2: album, um, I felt like it was. Uh, I think wrong. I think I was wrong. <laughs> I should add, but at the time, I thought it almost felt like she'd kind of commissioned herself to write the, You know, that song, like an everybody hurts type sentiment of like as a sanctuary where all sort of trouble people or people who are sad or, or could feel understood and i almost felt at the time like it was slightly too on the nose the thing is it's the final track on the album and i think it's actually perfect at the end it's a song where like all the sort of congregation that has sort of gathered during the course of the album and recognize something of their own pain or turbulence in the preceding songs kind of comes together in this moment of communion and god I wish I'd heard the album in that those songs in that order at the beginning because it absolutely makes sense coming where it does on the album it's it's just a stunning piece of work and uh, as to as Tanita said it's um you are it's hard to it's hard to find fault really. And yet people, people did. I mean, even now I looked at a couple of reviews, people really getting what the wrong end of the stick really sort of impugning motives in her that she couldn't possibly have, you know, a phrase is like her bid to be taken seriously as an artist. Not anyone sits down and says, I am not going to try and be taken seriously <laughs> as an artist.
0: I think it's interesting you used that expression commissioned herself because really what else is it that one does as a songwriter you know I've had this idea I think I should be the one to put it out there you know you you can only give birth to these things if you commission yourself to do them if you give yourself permission really to, to be the one that 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 brings this to life and I suppose all arts has an element of that doesn't it that the self-commissioning process what just staggers me about this record is just how how raw it can be or how uh, candid she is, how, how many ideas, how much of herself goes into it. It just has all the hallmarks to me of, of one of those great bits of work where where you feel privileged to be listening to someone coming up with this stuff.
1: When I first said it, I thought, wow, if I'd heard it at the right time, this would have the same space in my head as a Mary Margaret O'Hara album Miss America or something like that, mm-hmm. this kind of very... Incredibly personal statement that just 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 gives you goosebumps. It sounds as as edgy and, and contemporary as Saint Vincent or Anna Calvi or any of those artists. It, yeah, it really doesn't hasn't aged at all. And I can't believe that the opening track "Sky Lover" I think is a phenomenal track. and It's not even on Spotify. It's just definitely think this album needs to be it's, needs to be celebrated and and re-released and and perhaps repackaged i don't think the cover of the album really expresses what's. it's
0: not great no it's not quite right is it not um at
1: all,
0: so. it, it's uh, yeah slightly slightly odd image on, on the cover but i wonder pete is this like a kind of nick drake or something it was just wrong for its moment and if a new generation got to hear it now uh it might actually be accepted
2: I think you know there was maybe a timing issue with the release of it, and you know maybe you know there was an element of people at the label just not really believing it. I also wonder if there's a sort of um, if there's a if it suffered from a kind of underlying double standard in the way that uh, records by men and records by women are critically um, appraised. Not always, but often when a male singer songwriter kind of throws everything into something emotionally and you get that kind of cathartic overload of words and music and just kind of really kind of going for it it's a tour de force, it's cathartic, it's the album of their lives, you know. I think often there's a tendency to sort of see, when when a female artist makes a record like that, is a, a tendency to sort of be a bit more disparaging or to, to sort of... Uh, not to... to give it
1: the attention it deserves. I wonder also if this album was is the kind of album they really would have needed to work as a record company, in the sense that they really needed to take the care to release over a long have a long-term strategy and i and i and i very much doubt they would have done that they might have put out the first single and said okay that isn't gonna sell and 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 i think i don't know how they did it but
0: there were just, a couple of singles yeah um yeah. but um really they didn't do it with with much enthusiasm um as I said, it, it really t- just got ignored. The marketing seemed to be very poor. I massaged it into the um, Mojo albums of the year at, at Christmas, but it didn't really show up on any of those lists and didn't get terribly well reviewed at all. I can sort of understand how someone might have found it a bit daunting to listen to early on. You know, it, it you could say it's scary. It's an intense listen, isn't it? I agree with Pete. I think one is tempted to think there's an an element of misogyny or just, yeah, being disparaging about, oh God, listen, to her going off, uh, that sort of permeated the reaction to it? Because I, I can't think of any other reason to, to bury this record.
1: <laughs> I was just like, wow. First of all, it was the guitar playing. It's I didn't, great, isn't it? I didn't even know it was her playing the guitar. It's not a problem. The one thing, I had to look at the lyrics. It wasn't necessarily that you can understand the ly- And then I just... Was blown away by the by the mm. her world, her very personal world, and her anger. There's a lot of anger, and there's but there's something about her songwriting that's also got this. She's got a great gift for melody. You're thinking it's going to be kind of grungy, and then suddenly we'll go into the most hooky chorus or the most yeah. you know catchy riff in the middle of this, which is very like Bowie.
2: And the case in point is Smarter, which got the most. Oddest chord progression uh, underneath the top line. I don't even know what they are because I don't I don't play. But there's a sort of there's a, so it's a sequence of quite melancholy chords, and then it sort of goes into these kind of overblown kind of Queen or Radiohead stuff. <laughs> that drama, that high, and that's what I you know a lot of the time. That's what I actually listen to a lot of um, Euro pop or like you know like, you know somebody like Self Control by Laura Brannigan or. <laughs> It just sounds like someone's world is about to end, you know. Like, and, um, and I, w- I really want that. So That's sometimes that's something I, I just feel like I need from music.
0: Yeah, sometimes you, you want someone to go out on a limb for you, don't you? Go on, Maria, go over the top. God,
2: yeah, I mean, I, but sometimes you just want over the top, and on yeah, that, you, want-
1: you want over the top. And she can totally do that vocally. She's she totally. Can- she's got an incredible voice. It's the fun. thing that makes me sad is thinking that if you did make an album like this and you did feel it had been rejected by the world, maybe that's why she's been so quiet after... And that's a terrible thing, because what an extraordinary talent.
2: That's as sad as, that is as sad as a lot of what you hear on the album itself. The fact that someone, if someone puts themselves on the line like that, and, you know, we hear this a lot more now, but a lot of, you know, women who feel like they can finally talk about the experience of going into a record company to talk about their record, and just had just to actually even talk about your record in a room full of men Mm. if you have an album full of songs like this and you know they don't you know 12 out of 13 people in the meeting heartbreaking that you could make a record like this and feel a bit about because she is going for it so on a song like absolutely barking stars Mm. um, which i think you both mentioned bowie earlier on it actually reminded me of suede in the way the early those early suede records because when Bernard Butler just attacks the guitar it, it, with such ferocity, you have it on that song. And I love that sense of attack, you know.
0: I can't help thinking there's some element of misogyny or weird fear of of female power in the way that, that this record was allowed to to die. I'm sure if a guy had made this... record this strong we'd we'd still be talking about it as a as an all-time classic now 25 years later clearly she wasn't easy to work with you know she's bipolar or whatever that's going to feed into the personality um again we've given lots of men license to be like that over the years and for some reason i think the business is really bad at helping particularly female solo artists get over those career hurdles, or those life changes, or the things that might stop them wanting to make music for a while, or things that might make it hard for them. Um, they're not encouraged in the, in the same way that men are. And so full marks to her for embracing these cha- changes in her life. I mean, to go from country punk pin-up to radical queer inspired by Dante and English folk in her 50s, it's a hell of a trip she's been on. And, uh, you know, it's great to Great to hear her kind of coming back to some strength now.
1: But if she was Nick that you would say, oh, that's totally normal. I, 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 I do feel there's a little misogyny. She has extraordinary musical gifts, as evident on this record. She has an incredible culture. You can hear that in the songwriting and the, and the way she uses language. OK, we can talk about Joanie Mitchell. That seems to be the female artist we can talk about in, in those terms. But there are other artists who also have as much gravitas as male artists. And their work deserves analysis in the same way. Mm. And I and I would say this record is a great case in point. So
0: yeah, yeah. Well, that's amazing. I'm glad someone agrees with me. Thank you very much.
2: It's it's been I've listened to it so much. On the remotest off chance that M- Maria or her representatives might be listening to this, and they they would like someone to oversee a sensitive, uh, beautifully presented, beautifully mastered vinyl reissue of this record. It would be my absolute privilege to see to that.
1: Perfect marriage, I think.
0: Well, I'd absolutely love to see that happen. Thanks very much, Pete and Tanita, for enjoying the record with me and for sharing your albums too. Just to remind everyone that we've been listening to Maria McKee's Life is Sweet, Odyssey by Odyssey, and Crimson Red by Prefab Sprout.
1: Thank
2: you. Thank you.
0: I, I learned a lot.
1: Yeah, thank you, guys.
0: And if you'd like to hear some of the music that we've been talking about today, you can go on to Spotify, You're Not On The List, episode two. There's a playlist there, including, uh, well, the Prefam Sprout and the Odyssey Arms. Unfortunately, Miriam McKee isn't available on Spotify. And we'll also have some of the other tracks we mentioned uh, along the way today as well. To give you a nice rounded picture of this conversation in musical form. And do remember to uh, like and comment wherever you get your podcasts, uh, because that helps other people find us. And we appreciate that uh, tremendously. And please join us again next time for You're Not On The List, more fascinating people discussing fascinating forgotten albums with me, Jim Irvin. Until then, bye-bye.